The Lord be with you. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so we're continuing on with the second part of the Apostles' Creed, which focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I know we wrapped up a little bit early last week, so are there any questions that arise out of that discussion? You didn't go home and study the catechism and say, I have questions and think through it? Okay, well, um, it suffices to say that, that you know, let's just, let's just think about it for a moment. So, how many persons in Jesus Christ? One. Yeah, I'm seeing a little bit of this, like one, yes. One person. How many natures? Two. Two. What are they? Yeah, the human and the divine, God and man, uh, together in one divine person. Now, we say the person is divine because, um, uh, because the person has always existed from all time and forever. It's the divine nature. Um, and, uh, and so the whole person is divine. Um, one of the principles in theology that, that is really important and that a lot of people miss is this um, understanding that um, the, the words we use about Jesus are, um, are transitive. They, they speak back and forth, right? Um, one of the ways you can just imagine that is, um, did only the human nature die on the cross? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We say emphatically, God died on the cross, now, we don't mean that God ceased to exist, because we Christians don't believe to die is to cease to exist. Let's be clear about that. I think one of the reasons that's shocking is like, oh, no, we can't say that God ceased to exist. No, God died on the cross. Um, we say that God was born of woman, right? Um, we say all these because, because these, um, it's called the communicatio idiom autumn. The idioms we use regarding the sun translate back and forth. They communicate back and forth. And this keeps us from a lot of problems, right? Because it would be, it'd be wrong to say that, uh, for instance, and we said this earlier, you know, only as human nature dies on the cross. Um, it is Jesus acting as one person uh, that, is, that is at the heart of our salvation um, and continues to be, right? Um, this is the thing that a lot of people often miss. They sort of think, oh, well, Jesus takes on human nature. He takes on human flesh. He dies. He rises from the dead. And at some point, he just sort of says, I'm going to get rid of that nasty human nature and go be with God, and that'll be it. No, that's not how it works. Right now, in the, uh, in the reality of the divine trinity is a human being. Um, so this, this continues on. It continues to be the case. Um, so maybe that'll help you sort of see what we're going to get into next. Because uh, now we're going to start to talk about the particulars of Jesus, um, his, his uh, death on the cross, his resurrection, uh, and so forth. Um, yes? So the formulation that I was taught was that it's correct to say that the divine person yes. Well, what we want to say is that God died, right? What we want to say is that... Is that um, so I'm wondering if you have a problem with that formulation, so long as it's the problem is that it separates the natures. That's, that's, now, it's not wrong, but it, it's got some problematic leanings, right? It, it leads you to think that, um, that, that, he on, that the only thing that dies on the cross is a human nature. Um, and that's not true, right? Um, the, the person of Christ. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, well, with respect to his person, right? She's his mother as a whole person, yeah. And that's, that's where this gets really, it's, it's really important to say this um, because there's, a, there's an ancient horse heresy called Nestorianism which tends to say that what, what Jesus does uh, as a human being is separate from that. Uh, separate from what he does as a whole person, and that that leads to some confusion. Um, uh, there's there's speculation that you know the Nestorians were not quite saying that, and I think that's valid enough to say. But Nestorianism formally is a heresy, and it, it, and it largely deals in those kinds of abstractions. Okay, so should we move into this part? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is question 57. Um, 
We can also, I want to just fill in one more thing, um, which is uh, uh, this, this question of what, what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord? You're a little spotty on the most basic of Christian creeds. Should we try, should we try again? <laughs> what does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yeah, it means we need to obey him. Um, it also means that he exercises um, uh, uh, mastery over all. Um, Jesus is Lord. I, I want to remind you of this. Jesus is Lord um, as a Christian creed was inherently in the time that it was first articulated absolutely subversive and treasonous. Because on Roman coinage, you know, this issue of the denarius, right? Jesus asked for a coin and says, whose image is on the coin? And what do they say? Caesar, right? The words on the coin are Lord Caesar in Greek. Um, and Jews took issue with this because this is Caesar claiming not just to be uh, uh, master or to be president or to be uh, emperor. What is it a claim to be? God, divine. Um, so this is a, this is, when, when Christians say Jesus is Lord, they're not just saying that he needs to be obeyed, which he does, and they're not just saying that he's master over all, they're saying this Jesus is God. Um, so that is, that is the, and remember that um, in the New Testament, that's the most basic of Christian creeds is Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember what Paul says about this in Philippians. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? Um, if you confess with your mouth, that what? Yeah, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead, um, you shall be saved. This is Paul in, Roman, in Romans chapter 10. So, so the, the, this is the most basic of creeds. Um, but it has implications for everything, right? Which is what? Well, if Jesus is Lord, do you, do you believe what he says? Do you believe what those that he's left in authority uh, have, have said as well? Yes. So there's, um, you, you, uh, you, you surrender your will, Right? to Jesus. That's, that's at the heart of the Christian life, is a surrender to the will of Jesus. Um, but let's continue on with this section of he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why did Jesus suffer? Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could have peace with God, but in the Old Testament. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Um, those ancient Christians saw in the Old Testament the fulfillment of various prophecies that uh, the servant of God, uh, the, the son of David, uh, would suffer, um, would suffer great, would suffer greatly, um, and not just for any old reason, but for our sins, for our transgressions. Um, this prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53 of Isaiah um, formed one of the, the main places where ancient Christians looked to see uh, Christ in the Old Testament. Remember, in our scripture section, we had talked about that. that remember that wonderful line by Augustine that, that, the, that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, right? That uh, there's a, uh, what happens in the New Testament is the Old Testament is just sort of opened up and, we're, and we see it, right? We see each cohen hearing in the other. Um, which is to say that when Christians saw this suffering um, under Pontius Pilate, uh, this suffering on the cross, um, they saw the fulfillment of promises of the Old Testament. In, which, in what ways did Jesus suffer? On earth, the incarnate Son shared physically, mentally, and spiritually in the temptations and sufferings common to all people. In his agony and desolation on the cross, he suffered in my place for my sins and in so doing, displayed the self-denial I am called to embrace for his sake. Um, sometimes we tend to think that Jesus only suffered in his passion. Um, this is, in fact, not the case. Uh, Jesus suffered throughout his life, um, and we see this in a variety of ways, but um, he suffered temptations. Um, 
You know, we like to think he never got a cold or he never got sick or he never had uh, maybe a broken arm or something like that. I, don't, I actually don't think he had a broken arm, but, but whatever, that, that, that there was no pain, there was no, there, he had no headaches, he had no sickness of any kind. Uh, no, he, he shared in all of those sufferings uh, that are common to all of us. Um, but it is specifically um, in his agony and desolation on the cross that he suffers uh, as a... Uh, a, a sacrifice of expiation for sin. This answer, I always have to say this, offers one view of the cross, which is that of substitutionary atonement. Um, the understanding that uh, I deserve to die on the cross, and what happens? Jesus takes my place. That's one view of the atonement, okay? There are, there are many Christian views of the atonement. I want to make that really clear. Um, you know, I, I don't... I don't think that uh, one must absolutely say, you know, substitutionary atonement is the only way, right? Uh, there, there are a lot of ways to see the cross because it is so um, uh, magnificent what happens there. Um, and many Christians have opined on, on many different counts about what happens there. Um, but uh, I remember when we were, we were writing this answer uh, I remember, I think someone was ribbing Dr. Jim Packer for, for putting such a clear statement of substitutionary atonement in there and said, you know, do you really think that, you know, substitutionary atonement is, is the way that we ought to put it? He said, yes, I do. <laughs> um, you know, is, is that your leaning, Dr. Packer? He said, yes, it is, and I thank God every day for it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think, you know, we really do need to have this facet in mind when we think about what happened on the cross that... that um, I should be suffering the, the pain of my sin. I should be suffering the consequence of my sin, and I, and I don't to the extent that Jesus does. Um, what I really think is at issue here is, is this, that there are often people who say something like this, well, whose sins did he bear? And then there are others who say, how far did he really go? And the best answer to that is, he went as far as possible. Um, meaning that uh, he offers a sacrifice for all sin, and he, he, he offers it to the fullest extent that is even possible in this world. Um, Anglicans have uh, dissented from many of the uh, Protestant theologies on the continent uh, by saying emphatically, most of all in our Eucharistic liturgies, that Jesus Christ suffered for all. Um, why do we say that? Because that's what Scripture says, yeah. It's, it's really actually not that complicated. Um, the teaching of Scripture is emphatically uh, that, um, that, um, uh, that, that God um, offers, uh, that Jesus offers himself on the cross for the sins of all. Um, so, why does the creed say that Jesus suffered under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate? The creed thus makes clear that Jesus' life and death were real events that occurred at a particular time and place in Judea in the first century A.D. Um, remember that the creeds have an emphasis on history, and not just sort of fake Christian history, but real history. You know, history is as, as much uh, history as thinking about the um, you know, Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar and, and uh, William Shakespeare and all the rest. There's Jesus occupies a place in human history, and this tying to Pontius Pilate makes that abundantly clear. Um, keep in mind also that uh, the Roman governor at the time um, is, um, is an agent of the emperor, an agent of Caesar. Uh, and he crucifies Jesus as an agent of Caesar. He hands him over to death as an agent of Caesar. Now, let me just ask you this. If you were to formulate a creed in the midst of the Roman world, would you say something like that? No, you wouldn't. You would say something like, mm, a lot of things happen, it's pretty complicated, like, you know, uh, you know uh, blame somebody, right, for it, but certainly not the, the agent of Caesar in the, in the, in the world at that time. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of... Uh, emphatic clarity about what happened. And Scripture says, says this very strongly. Now, of course, it's not as simple as Pilate condemns Jesus to death. Of course, he does. Right? We can say that very clearly. 
He hands him over to death. He hands him over to, uh, and, and one of the, I think one of the most fascinating things about the, the gospel's accounts of the crucifixion is that you can't sort of point a finger and say, Pilate did it. Yep, he's responsible. He's the one who did it. You can't look at, at the Jewish authorities and say they did it because it's not that simple. You can't look at really anybody and say they did it. That was the executioner. That was the judge. That was the jury. That was this. Everybody shares responsibility. Um, and, of course, this is not only because it was historically what happened, but um, there's something being said here. Keep in mind this, this being passed from the high priest to uh, Herod to Pilate and back and forth and back and forth until he's crucified um, is, uh, is to say that, that everyone shares in this. Um, someone this past week at a conference I was at re- recounted um, what had happened at his parish on a Good Friday. Uh, there was a young woman who was uh, emphatically not a Christian, but, but she was invited to walk with this parish church through Holy Week. And they had uh, the veneration of the cross on Good Friday, and they had Stasis of the Cross at 3 o'clock, and uh, she stood in the back of the church and, and wept after this three-hour liturgy. And the priest says he, he, he just sort of took her like this, and, and, uh, and, and she just said, I did that. That was all she could say. It was, I, that was me. I did that. Um, all, all humanity shares a role. We all have a role to play in this, uh, in this drama that is the Lord's passion. Um, and we can't just sort of say it was a historic event and it happened way back when and it was regrettable because we all participate. Um, and so we participate by our sins. All right. Um, but it is still nonetheless a historical event. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. What does Jesus' crucifixion mean? It means that Jesus was executed as a common criminal. He was scourged, mocked, and nailed to a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Though humanly a miscarriage of justice, his execution fulfilled God's plan that Jesus would bear my sins and die the death that I deserve so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. Um, At the heart of the meaning of of, uh, Jesus' crucifixion, uh, is this last uh, sentence here, that he bears my sins, dies the death that I deserve, um, so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. Um, this is all in the divine plan, that this would happen, uh, that this was what was uh, willed. You remember that Jesus uh, prays in the garden on the night before his crucifixion. What does he pray? Yeah, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Um, and, and many commentators have, have thought about this. Does this mean that Jesus was at that time willing something that the Father uh, did not will? Um, was it meaning that there was, a, there was, a, divine, there was a, a big looming question among the members of the Trinity, right? What, what, what is going to happen here? And yet he doesn't stop there, does he? What does he say? Yet, not my will, but thine be done. Um, Jesus submits his will to that of the Father, uh, and, and some might say he submits his wills to that of the Father, but, but I think it's more appropriate to say that he, he submits his human will to that of the Father. Um, and, and it is for this reason uh, that he is handed over. Um, he, uh, this is an important thing to keep in mind as well, because uh, we often imagine uh, Jesus sort of being arrested against his will, uh, being compelled uh, to carry his cross, being nailed down by force, um, and the, the really the, the, the better way to think of it is that he willingly submits to this fate. There's a really wonderful um, uh, Spanish painting of the crucifixion. Um, why am I forgetting his name right now? Oh, the guy with the, you know, runny-looking clocks and, wa- and pocket watches. Who is he? What's it? Yeah, Dali. Salvador Dali, yeah. Who, by the way, was a very holy man, a very saintly man. They're actually proposing sainthood in the Catholic Church in Spain for him. Um, he, uh, he, he paints Jesus crucified, um, but am I getting this wrong? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm, my brain's not really functioning very well right now. Uh, but he's, he's crucified 
almost as if without nails. Um, he, he's, he's, putting, he's shown putting himself on the cross. Um, he's held there by his will, um, which is an amazing image, right? Because we, we think of it as something that was against his will, and, and it, is, it is his will. Um, this teaches us actually something which I, I do want to just say, which is that um, we do have the conscious ability in this life to avoid suffering at will um, in certain ways, don't we? I mean, you can, you can just say, I know this is going to be unpleasant, so I'm just not going to do it, right? Or I'm, I know I'm going to have to have this conversation. It's going to be awful, uh, but I'm going to avoid it as much as possible. Um, or I know that uh, it's going to be really painful uh, to stop taking these pain medications after my surgery at a certain point. Um, uh, so I'm just going to keep taking them. And then what do we find? We find these... This, massive opiate addictions, things like that are happening uh, because we don't have this idea that we as human beings get to embrace suffering. We have this ability to embrace it. Um, and it's actually in the embracing of suffering that we find it to be most redemptive. Um, uh, many of you have been pregnant, right? And you have this opportunity to embrace suffering uh, as you give birth um, uh, or not, as the case may be. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's something that I think... We need to think more about, right, which is that we can embrace suffering. We can, we can take it on um, in ways that are totally according to our will. Go ahead. Well, it's interesting. Um, um, I don't know that there's an official teaching on that, but I have, I've been thinking about that lately, and I have some thoughts if, you know, if you're interested to hear them. Um, I have, throughout most of my life, thought, you know, uh, sort of this, there's this linear view of, of God and of the economy of salvation, so to speak, such that um, God sort of exists and the Trinity exists and then at some point creates and then the Son becomes incarnate and then, you know, he's crucified and, you know, thank God that's over. He rises from the dead, ascends to the right hand of the Father. And things, aside from human nature being the right hand of God, uh, continue on as normal. Um, I think that's a really uh, paltry understanding of time and how it functions. I think it's also not a great understanding of, um, of how, how the passion sort of exists within the economy of God all at once, such that... Um, it is, it is, this, this suffering on the cross is, is, um, is something which is, which can't be forgotten. It's, it's a, it's a reality. It's, it's, it's a, it's an ever present feature of the humanity of Christ. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is one of the grand debates in Christian thinking, is what happens in the Eucharist? Is Christ re-crucified in the Eucharist? And I think the answer that Anglicans give is absolutely not. That's not what happens. Are we brought to the cross in the Eucharist? Yeah. There's no other body of Jesus than the one that was crucified. Right? Think about what happens in the resurrection. Is he raised in this pristine body that shows no marks? No. He has, he has wounds. Um, and so, uh, you know, the fathers go on at length about this, how we, we are basically uh, in the Eucharist brought into a participation in his passion. And that's not to say that he's crucified again, but it's just to say that we're, we're, we're there with him again in that place. Um, and of course, it transcends all time, right? <laughs> I mean, the way you should think about it is that from the moment I say, blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, time just sort of stops. 
Liturgically, it stops, right? You can still look at your watch and see the time is progressing, and I know some of you do. I watch you, uh, especially during my sermons, so, you know. <laughs> um, but, but we should think that liturgical time, it, it just stops. Why? Because we're entering into God's time, um, which doesn't function like ours does, um, and, uh, and it's, it's a very different, very different thing. So, I want to raise that for you, but I think if I pursue it any further, I'll go totally into speculation, and that would not be catechesis. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to kind of hold back a little bit. Um, why does the creed make a point of saying that Jesus died? The creed makes the point to emphasize that Jesus died a real bodily death, such as all people face because of our sins. Um, Remember that it's the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus died. The Nicene Creed is a little bit more circumspect about that, and I have no idea why. Um, But the Apostles' Creed proclaims clearly that he died. Um, And it does this, uh, first of all, to dispel certain heresies which have always existed in Christian time and also throughout the world regarding what did happen on the cross. Um, The Docetists, this uh, particular Christian heresy, uh, early on claimed that he didn't really die, he only appeared to die on the cross. Either that Jesus is a kind of apparition, which is crucified and shows itself being crucified uh, to sort of show God's love, but uh, nevertheless, the suffering is not real because... um, they have all these hang-ups about, about uh, first of all, they have a hang-up about the Incarnation. They have a hang-up about a bunch of other things as well. The idea that God could suffer is a problem, right? I mean, even for classic uh, theism, it's a real problem that you would think of God suffering at all. So there's this kind of question of how can we, how can we parse that out a little bit? And I think the problem is as you parse it out, you get further and further from the gospel in a certain sense. Um, this, is a, this is a mystery, as to how this happens. Um, and part of the thing that heresies attempt to do, always, is they attempt to clarify when things seem really paradoxical. Right? They attempt to say, yeah, that seems really, those, you know, these two things, they seem at odds. Let's try to reconcile them a little bit. And that's where you go wrong. Because Christianity has a way of saying, Christian teaching has a way of saying, no, we can hold, we can hold this incredible paradox together. Um, Which, I should tell you, uh, people that want to fake something and pull off the greatest, uh, you know, kind of scam in all of history would not do that. (laughs) They would stick to clean categories. uh, You know, that's just how it is. And you know this because you've told a lie before. How's the lie go? Well, the reality was it was complicated. The lie is it was really simple, (laughs) right? You, you, You fabricate a very simple lie. Um, so, so this has always kind of hung around. It's been in the, been in the ether surrounding uh, the church for a long time. Um, I, I should note as well that one of the largest religions in the world today teaches essentially a descetic understanding of the cross. Do you know what it is? Islam. Islam is basically descetic, heretical Christianity taken down the road to the point of abstraction. Um, that's essentially what it is. The Quran says... Uh, basically that Jesus appeared to die on the cross, but he didn't really, and that was it. Um, and many modern people today, many modern New Testament scholars, etc., scholars say <laughs> uh, that he appeared to die on the cross and that something else happened, right? Uh, that he was resuscitated, that he was, um, uh, uh, you know, many people say he, he, he took some sort of uh, drug to make him pass out, um, but as we'll see, this is not actually what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches something far more um, fantastic than that. Why does the creed emphasize Jesus' death in this way? The creed emphasizes Jesus' death to counter suspicions that Jesus did not truly die on the cross, to celebrate the fact that he died there to secure our salvation, and to prayer our minds to grasp the glory of his bodily resurrection. Um, so we've said a lot of this already, but these last two are really important to celebrate the fact that he did die. Um, we call Good Friday Good Friday for a reason. It's good. And despite, you know, on, you know it may be your first time to come to a, a you know, traditional celebration of Good Friday uh, coming up in the spring, but um, 
despite all of the solemnity and all of the reverence and all of the um, starkness, there's still this posture of celebration that's under the surface. And it's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of eerie in a way, um, this posture of celebration. But it's also to prepare our minds to grasp the glory of his resurrection. If Jesus did not truly die, then what point is the resurrection? And what is the resurrection? As we'll see when we go through this, the resurrection does not mean resuscitation. It's not as though angels went into the tomb, did CPR, and, ha, well, that was nice, and then they sort of roll back a stone and he emerges. That's not it. Um, The the resurrection in Christian teaching is something far more fantastic than that. Um, It's also not as though uh, he sort of swoons. He sort of passes out, and they give him smelling salts, and he wakes up. Um, But we'll get there. What does the creed mean by saying that Jesus descended to the dead? That Jesus descended to the dead means that he truly died. His spirit did not remain with his body, but entered the realm of death. Okay, here's a really, you know, this is where things take a really wild turn. Um, Anglicans hold, in teaching on uh, his descent among the dead, uh, that Jesus truly, uh, uh, in, in truly dying, experiences death in exactly the way that we do which is that our spirit is, takes up residence with the dead. Our soul takes up residence with the dead, um, goes among the place of the dead. The best way to describe this is the way that Jews understood the world at that point, that you, you, like, all ancient, like most ancient people, you have an underworld, right? Kind of like when Orpheus goes in the underworld, uh, all of these kinds of things where, you know, what happens, when we, what happens when people die? What do we do with them? Yeah, we bury them, right? and they take up a place among the dead. Um, the understanding which English Christians had was that this is what had happened. Um, that Jesus goes among the souls of the, of the departed. Um, and in the ancient world, uh, the place of the dead is not, uh, you know, in both Jewish thought and in, in uh, Greek thought, is, is not a fun place to be, I'll put it that way. It's kind of an eerie, scary, awful place. Um, no hope, no one ever goes among the dead and lives to tell about it, or at least that only rarely happens. Um, but this is the teaching that Jesus goes among the dead. In First Peter, Peter takes a little bit further than this and actually uh, says that the gospel is preached among the dead. Um, this is what's fun, right? Is, is this Understanding that Christians have had for a long time that Jesus in his, soul, in his spirit descends among the dead, proclaims his saving death uh, to the saints of old um, who rejoice in it um, and who, are, uh, who receive the gospel from among the dead, which is an amazing thing. Um, and you might think, well, how can dead people receive the gospel? I mean, we, we sort of assume that the soul isn't rational. I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> there's, there's all of this thought that goes into this. And sometimes you'll see, um, when we get to the resurrection, we'll say more about this, but you'll see, re- you'll see icons of the resurrection in which Jesus is standing on the gates of hell, the doors of hell, crossed one over the other. And he's offering his hands in his risen body. To whom? Adam and Eve, Right? Uh, Moses is there, Abraham's there, they're all there. Elijah's there. Um, and it's, it's, I think this is, what's, what's being said here is really simple. It's that God does not abandon his people to death. Um, and so we, we, can, we can hope for that. Um, on the third day he rose again. What does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus rose, rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated, God restored him physically from death to life in his perfected and glorious body, never to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Um, To give some historical context here, uh, I've uh, had the occasion to visit um, the Holy Land twice in my life. And both times have gone regularly to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built on the traditional site of Jesus' passion. 
including both his death and, death and resurrection. Um, and whether or not you believe that's the case, there's a really strong case to be made for that being the site. And that case has actually been improved in recent years. Uh, several years ago, there was a fire in the, um, in the Coptic chapel, which is behind the site of the resurrection. And uh, some of the plaster work was destroyed in that. And what they found behind the plaster work, which dates back to the seventh century, uh, they found first century burial caves. And here's how they essentially function. Um, your loved one would die, and you would prepare them for burial, anointing the body with oils and ointments. You'd wrap them in a shroud, and you would place the body uh, in one of these uh, burial caves, which are kept at about an even 58 degrees, 60 degrees all year round, um, which, as it turns out, is perfect weather uh, for letting a body decompose over time. Um, and then uh, you would go back in a couple of years and you would, you would take the bones out of that burial cave and uh, you would put the bones in a, in a uh, stone box called an ossuary and then that would be moved uh, to a place of honor or a place of, uh, of remembrance. This is what, uh, what uh, the New Testament says happened with the body of Jesus. They placed him in a new tomb that had never been used, uh, which will tell you something. What does it tell you? What's that? Yeah, well, it also, it also tells you that they're not putting, um, they're not putting his, his body in, right? And then basically swapping bones, right? And so Jesus' bones are in there, and they kind of fake it, and someone else comes out. Right? So that's not happening. It's a new tomb. Never been used before. Um, it's also to say uh, that um, their expectation is that this is final, uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, um, the Gospel of John, they're, they're, um, it's basically said that they prepare his body for burial um, and they, they do this in full expectation that he's dead, he's gone. Um, keep in mind that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus use a hundred pounds weight of ointment, uh, which if, if we can kind of think about that for a moment, uh, the cost of that was unbelievable. Um, in today's dollars, it'd be well over a million dollars worth of ointment uh, is used on his body at once. Um, amazing, amazing expense. Uh, Nicodemus has clearly uh, come to faith in Jesus by seeing this, uh, this, these events take place. Um, but the expectation is that he will not rise. He's told them over and over again, you know, I must be crucified in what, on the third day rise? But they don't expect that he will. Um, what happens in the resurrection exceeds human imagining. And that's really the thing that I, that I want to say. No one would have possibly expected that this could even happen. Now, keep in mind, there are Jews who believe, or who believed at the time, particularly the Pharisees, that human beings would be raised from the dead at some point in history. The resurrection of the dead was a, was a, was a, a reality that was awaited. But it did not mean what we see in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of the dead in Jewish thought was something more like this. You'll sort of wake up, you'll be put back together, you'll have a body very much like what you have now, and you'll sort of serve in the eternal son of David's eternal bureaucracy forever and ever and ever, and you'll manage the world and, uh, and you know, get to ins maybe even enslave the Romans. Wouldn't that be nice, you know? It's things like that, but it's still very much uh, a body like what you and I have. Well, but let's ask this next question to see what, uh, what happens here. But let me, let me just uh, go over a few of these details at the end of this question. Um, Jesus' resurrection is, is told to us to be bodily, and we'll say more about that. Uh, but it's also that this risen Jesus is seen uh, repeatedly. Um, he's seen by, uh, according to Paul's uh, words, as many as 500 at once um, who all see him. Now, many have postulated that uh, maybe there was some uh, psychedelic drug use among the witnesses to the, to the resurrection, and here's just one problem with that. Have, well, observers of Woodstock will tell very different stories about what happened. Observers of any event will tell very different stories, well, and you know why. 
because our memories don't really tell the exact verbatim story. They're not tape recorders. How do they work? They build idealized stories, right? What happens in the resurrection is really interesting because they're not sort of saying, well, I remember it this way, but I remember it this way. They're, they're witnessing the resurrection together in unison. And when many people see something happen at once, they're going to give different accounts of it because that's how memory works. But they're not going to give wildly different, they're, not going, to, they're going to give wildly different accounts in certain senses um, if they maybe were using psychedelic drugs or something like that, right? The, the witnesses to the resurrection indicate that they, that they witnessed the same risen Jesus, okay? We'll say more about that. What kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars, and ate with them. Well, it's, it's a little bit even more than that. Uh, how does he appear to them? Okay, beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. On the first day of the week, doors being locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus what? He appears among them. Does he unlock the door and walk in? No, what does he do? Whoosh! Oh, hi. <laughs> I didn't know you were in here. It's that, it's that level of... Uh, it's, it's amazing, right? Now, many people will look at that and say, that doesn't sound much like a bodily resurrection to me. Because people like John Shelby Spong, an Episcopal bishop, will say, like, that's not what Scripture says happened doesn't teach a bodily resurrection. And I think, well, anybody who knows anything about what the New Testament says, says something like this. It's a different kind of body. It's his body. But what is it? Ooh, it's changed. It's changed. Um, it is, as, as Paul will put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about the general resurrection. It, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a What? A spiritual body. Now, does that mean it's non-material or non-bodily? Not at all. Um, it is conforming to, um, to the nature of a spirit. Um, so he can disappear and reappear. He can travel great distances in one day. Okay, by the way, this is the road to Emmaus, right? The road to Emmaus is way out there. And we hear he appears in Jerusalem, and he appears on the road to Emmaus. He's all over the map in one day. And people say, that can't happen with a body. They're like, not a natural body, <laughs> but a spiritual body? You bet. This, this spiritual body that's risen in the resurrection is a body. You can touch him. He can eat. He doesn't have to, but he can eat. Um, can disappear and reappear. Um, can possibly change his appearance. Um, this is what the New Testament teaches about the, about the risen body of Jesus. Um, and that, to a materialist, is beyond the pale. Right? Because, like, well, I can't confirm that. Yeah, you're right, you can't. Not, not through the eyes uh, in the way that, that we confirm material realities. How do the disciples perceive the risen Christ? Well, yeah, so they first don't recognize him. They see him, but they don't recognize him, right? So there's, there's a different kind of seeing which goes on, right? Think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do they, they see him with their eyes, but they don't see him for who he is. What happens is he unfolds the scriptures to them. Their hearts burn within them. Right? There's a kind of seeing which doesn't happen through natural eyes uh, that it takes to perceive his risen body. Now, of course, they can look at him and say, oh, it is you. Uh, um, Thomas is a great example of that. He sees the risen Christ, and he believes that it's him. Um, but this is, this is a very different account. Um, the, the best way to put it is that the, the risen body of Jesus is no longer limited in the way that our bodies are limited. Um, if I'm here at 1008 Jefferson, I can't be here and at home at the same time, as much as I might try to be and as much as some people might want that to be. I can't do it. 
um, I also uh, can't just sort of disappear and reappear somewhere else. I'm limited. Um, but the risen body of Jesus is not limited in that way. Um, now, what's really important, and I want to kind of jump ahead a little bit, what's really important about this resurrection? What are the, what's the immediate takeaway the disciples have? Okay, death's defeated. Jesus is Lord. Okay, all that's there, yeah. Oh, it's so big. It's so big. Yes, 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 that's right. They understand that Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead, as Paul would put it. Um, that we have this future reality to look forward to as ours. Um, this will tell you something, right? Listen, I realize this is going to just completely cut against the grain of all you ever heard about what Christians believe growing up, but we have to look forward to a risen bodily life. Um, the heaven, you know, heaven is not just sort of like floating around in the ether like a ghost forever and ever, uh, playing a harp and, you know, looking through a glass-floored, you know, high-rise down on the earth. No, we, we look forward to a bodily resurrection. Um, and, not, and not even this, not even like I'm going to let go of my old body and get a new body. What is it? It's a different reality. It's a renewed body. It's a renovated body. Um, it is a, um, uh, a, a body which conforms to a different reality, but is your body. Um, raised to a higher state. Um, so this is what we have to look forward to. This is a really important thing because um, many Christians just sort of assume today that, uh, that, you know, I won't need my body later on. Uh, you know, I've even seen friends and family say things like, just throw me in a dumpster. My body doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, scatter me in the river, you know, uh, keep me on the mantle. It's that kind of thing. Um, Christians have always revered the body even in death. From the very earliest centuries, Christians gathered in the catacombs to pray to be as close to the, to the communion of saints as possible, um, built their altars on top of tombs, uh, all kinds of things, um, so that uh, uh, what is shown forth is a, a hope in the resurrection of the dead. Go ahead. What's that? Cremation, yes. So that's, that, that kind of begs another question. We can talk about that when we get to the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the body, but Christians have actually classically been against cremation. Um, it was really only been in the last hundred years or so that Christians have kind of embraced cremation. Now, there's nothing morally wrong with cremation, right? I don't want to say that. I think it's totally permissible. Um, what I do question, personally, is the question of what message does that send and so I've made instructions to say, nope, my body's not going to be cremated. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to send my kids out for dry ice when I die. <laughs> and, uh, and they'll stick me in it, and, uh, and I'll just uh, I'll be taken up north and buried. That's how it's going to be. Um, I want my kids to hear my body ri- rolling around in a wooden box. I want them to hear the dirt hit the top of that box when they bury me. Because I want them to think of me not as a sort of rapidly decomposed pile of ashes, but as a human being with dignity, as a human being with a body, um, as their father, right? I want, I want you all, like if I was to die tomorrow, right, I, I know that my body would be brought down this very aisle, set up there, right? Um, and, and this would be what you would see. Um, because I'm not, listen, I, I, I pray that my life would be a testimony to the risen Christ, right? Um, and so that's kind of my, my, uh, my concern about cremation, is that cremation liturgically sends a different message. Um, and I think that's actually the question is, what, what's the liturgical message of cremation? Um, and you know me, I'm like 
the liturgy and the, and the, the ritual we use should look as much like the thing signified as possible. Right? If we baptize a baby, it should look like we're killing the baby. Right? And that's scary. I mean, I've had people go, oh, he's going to kill the baby. It's like, no, it's fine. I've done this before. Right? But, it, but it's, it's like, oh. Like, um, you know, the wine should taste as much like wine as possible. And I realize, like, this is always the accusation. Well, but it doesn't look like bread, you know. Um, <laughs> it's easier to accept that it's the body of Christ than to accept it's bread. I understand. Um, but, but it's to say that, that uh, we show forth liturgically what, what it is we believe. I've got room for one more question. Natalie? I'm not hearing. Ah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, but keep in mind, in God's time, his risen body is the same body that was crucified. It's, 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 there's one body, right? There's one body of Christ. Um, and this, is, this leads to a lot of really interesting things. So let me repeat the question for the podcast, which is that in the Eucharist, do we say that that's his risen body? And the answer is yes. It's also his crucified body. It's also the body born of Mary, right? Um, but here's the distinction. In Anglican Eucharistic theology, we teach that the body of Christ is received after a spiritual manner, and the reason is simple, that this is the body which was raised after a spiritual manner, as Paul says in Corinthians. Um, now, that's not to say that it is immaterial. It's to say that the way in which we receive it is not um, after a bodily sense, right? So it's not like our cells are nourished with the body, with the, with the flesh of Christ, that's not what's being said. Um, our souls are being nourished with the spiritual food of the Eucharist, right? That's, that's where the grace is. So I have to be clear about that. But that is, I mean, Paul says this. The bread which we break, is it not a, he says in Greek, koinonia, participation in the body of Christ? Which body of Christ does he, does he envision? I think he actually is considering the body of Christ in every way that that body has lived. Because remember, we, we see it from the perspective of chronological time, but think about how God sees it. Think about how Jesus himself sees it. It's, it's all taken up into the divinity, all of it, participates in it. His whole life does. It's life, death, resurrection. It's one reality in God. Um, and and that's why Christians have been very careful to say that it is the whole reality of Christ that we receive, right? Um, it's, it's that body which is crucified, risen, and ascended um, that we receive. Now, I should say as well, it's the fact of the resurrection that makes the Eucharist possible. Because that body's no longer limited. We can, we can access it in a variety of ways. Okay, so thank, we'll begin next week with saying more about this.